Alright, we're going to read from God's Word. Uh, from Acts chapter 27. So if you want to grab a seat, we'll grab that. We're going to read from Acts chapter 27. We hold it city light that the Bible is God's word, and as it's read faithfully and taught, it's God speaking to us. And we're picking up the story in Acts chapter 27, which is on page 953. If you have a church Bible with you, it'll come up on the screen for you as well. Uh, but before we do that, uh, a bit of exciting news. Andy and Jono are engaged. Yeah. So, very exciting. Took, took your time, Jono. All right. Well, something that, uh, that happened a lot faster was Paul's missionary journey uh, in Acts, Acts chapter 27. And so we're picking up the story from sentence 9. If you are with us last week, uh, we're following the story of a man called Paul who was on trial for following Jesus He appealed to Caesar, which means he wants his case heard in Rome. And under Roman law, that meant he had to be escorted under guard to Rome. And so this week, uh, we're seeing his journey to Rome to testify his case before Caesar. And we pick up at sentence 9 of chapter 27. Acts 27, sentence 9. By now much time had passed, and the voyage was already dangerous. Since the fast was already over, Paul gave his advice and told them, Men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward damage and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbour on Crete, open to the southwest and northwest, and to winter there. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed uh, to the shore of Crete. But not long afterwards, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Kauda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle to gird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way were driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they drew the ship's gear overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. Since many were going without food, Paul stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and to sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For this night, an angel of the, of the God I belong to and serve stood by me saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and look, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore take courage, men, because I believe... I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. This is the word of God. 
Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name's Gav. I'm one of the pastors here. Great to have you with us. If you're new and newish, we hope you enjoy your time here at City Light, hanging out with us. Um, let me just add my welcome to the, to the newest members, um, to our Kabuba friend, Nick. Um, but it's, it's been amazing. I've been the chance, I had the privilege of meeting with Nick for the last 18 months, and he's a huge encouragement to me in my life. So um, it's good to finally get him over the line after four attempts and connect. <laughs> Love you, Nick. Um, uh, but um, here at City Light, Jeff was saying that we uh, we have the Bible every week because we believe it's how God speaks to us. And we are, we've been spending almost six months, look at Acts, long time, we're almost there, second last chapter, and uh, we're going to look at just chapter 27 today. But I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us to, uh, to listen and to put other distractions out of our minds, and he'd address us, he'd address our hearts. I don't know if you, if you thought, this, thought this before, but it's no accident you're here this afternoon. But God has you here for a purpose to talk to you, to speak to you. I'm going to pray that will happen. So let's talk to God together. Father, you are, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, you uh, say that you have numbered the very hairs on our head. Father, you know us deeply and intimately what we need. Um, Lord, we know that um, the, the, our minds are often churning over things and our hearts are or, or, and very rarely at rest. I want to pray that we would be able to just, you would, you would calm down our, our minds and put distractions aside and so that we can hear the creator of the universe, the love of our soul speak to us. Lord, we want to pray that wherever we are at with you, whether we're near or we're far, that again you would meet with us uh, by the power of your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would speak to exactly where we are at this afternoon. Just use me as your servant, Lord, to help me to get out of the way and for you to speak directly to us. And thank you that you are here, that you are present with us. We pray that you'll bless our time. Amen. Now, I wonder, um, I wonder if you ever wish that you are worried less in life, life or stressed less, or you could cope with life and its challenges a bit, bit better. Bit of a silly question, isn't it? I, I know we probably all, all feel that way. I know I definitely do. No one likes getting stressed or worried. But is it actually possible to be, to, to be, to be less stressed out, to, to, to worry less? We think of this a lot lately. Um, uh, we live in a time in, 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 a, in, a, in our, a city that is very busy. You know, Kate and I went on a, a 10-year wedding anniversary recently. We had a day off. We came back, and life was so hectic. And we thought, is this normal? Is this how it often operates? And it is. And, and it's hard because we, we fill our lives up with so many things, which are good things, but it can cause us stress and worry and anxiety. And I wonder if, if that's, that's just how I have to live. We've, uh, we've been having... Um, some fun times recently. Uh, um, we got a, a bunch of people who want to do marriage prep at the moment, which is great. And uh, last week we had a couple over called Grace and Ollie, a little marriage prep with them. And uh, Grace is a, is a teacher at school, at a school, and it was her, almost the last day of term. And she said the next day was dress up day. And she said um, the theme was that you had to get dressed up as someone who inspired you or who you wanted to be like. And I could see the look in her eyes, looking at me, thinking, I want to buy one of Gav shirts. And. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I knew she wanted it, but I, I said, look, Grace, you can't do that. And um, they're my good preaching shirts, you can't have them. And uh, no, she didn't at all. Uh, but it made me think, it made me think who, who would I go as? If, someone was, if, if that was, I had to get dressed up, who would I go as? You know, someone from Survivor maybe? Um, or a rugby union player, or an AFL player? Um, who would I go as? Now, I couldn't really land on anyone. But if you would have asked me, you know, 18 years ago, I, would have, I wouldn't have hesitated at all. And I would have said, my brother, my brother, my older brother. 
He's five years older than me, um, and he really looked after me growing up. Uh, we shared a room for a long time. We had this shoebox of a room. We shared a single bed side by side, and we would just hang out and we chat a lot. And he was the sort of older brother who was never, ever embarrassed to have me around at all. Even at high school, I was uh, in year seven, the little short, overweight uh, kid with a bold haircut, and, um, and uh, he was the, the cool guy of the school that everyone looked up to him, everyone loved him, um, and he always cared for me. You know, he'd always come at the playground at recess to lunch and see if I was okay. If he was talking to anybody else, and I'd come up, this little year seven kid, he would stop talking to them and look after me. It's the sort of brother that he was. Uh, he's one of the kindest people I've met. And we also played uh, rugby union together. And uh, same thing, on the rugby field, always look after me, um, making sure I was okay. And I think he was actually uh, a better player than I was. That was never really recognised. What made him such a fantastic player was he had no fear. He had no fear on the field. He was fearless. Uh, He would just hope, he would just hope that the biggest player on the team would run at him. So he could just tackle him and show everyone how good a tackler he was. Whereas I was like, you get him, man. You go out the front, I'll just stay behind you and I'll get the ball and I'll score the tries and you just smash people. Great. Good partnership. That's what, that's what he loved to do. Uh, he had no fear at all. Um, uh, he, uh, he, he was incredible and full of courage. And I looked up to him and I wanted to be like him. We've been, as I said, we've been looking at the book of Acts for the past uh, six months and... Um, for me, has been studying and, and, and writing sermons on this. Uh, I've got to really kind of understand like, the Apostle Paul in a whole, in a whole new way. Uh, the second half of the book of Acts, is, as you would know, is all about uh, the Apostle Paul. And as I've looked at the Apostle Paul, he's a lot like my brother is on the rugby field. He's fearless. He's full of courage. You know, this may sound a little cheesy, uh, but I would love to be more like the Apostle Paul. I wouldn't know how to get dressed up as him, but um, I, would, uh, I would love to be more like the Apostle Paul. And just think of this for a minute. Uh, what would we look at his life, uh, what his life was like um, in the second half of Acts? Uh, he belonged to this uh, religious group, this really, um, this, this really um, fundamental religious group called the Pharisees. And that's, that's who he's a part of. Uh, he was a young up-and-comer in this Pharisee group. And basically, he's, he made his personal mission to go and find Christians, uh, arrest them, and then hopefully kill them or persecute them. That was what he was trying to do. And he would go from city to city to city to chase them, find them, arrest them, and then, and then and hopefully have them killed. And he had it all set up for him. Being part of this Pharisee group meant power, it meant prestige, it meant popularity for him. Uh, belonging to this group, it meant he was respected and feared, and he would, he would be above certain people. And it was all ahead of this young man, Paul, or Saul. But that all changed. We read last week, he was traveling the road to Damascus uh, and uh, going to kill more Christians. Then Jesus meets him and says, why are you persecuting me for? And in that moment, everything changed for Paul. No longer did he hate followers of Jesus, he became one himself. He became one himself. And we can read this story of the Apostle Paul and he, yeah, he got converted, great, you know, whatever. But his whole life changed within an instant, forever. He goes from being someone of, of, of uh, uh, good standing in the society as a Pharisee, someone with power and respect and money and a future and comfort, to being someone who is threatened for his life, who is beaten, who is hated, who is worth nothing in the world dies anymore, who is the absolute scum of society. He, he, he gets by by you know, scrimping and saving, trying to get his next meal as a follower of Jesus. I think we forget what it's often like to be a follower of Jesus back then. It'd be like being a Christian today in the Middle East or in China, 
running, hiding, the lowly of society. And Paul gave everything up, literally everything up to follow Jesus. So if that was his life after he became a Christian, that's what it looked like for him. What was his attitude? What was his attitude toward life, toward these hardships, to these beatings, to these being disrespected, this injustice? Well, he knew that would be the norm if you want to be a follower of Jesus. What was he like? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm struck by how he's fearless. He's courageous. What I've loved about him is the way he deals with uncertainty, with circumstances that are beyond his control. He lives on the doorstep of, of, of what is coming at, at him next. It's where he lives. But you look at him and he's still fearless. You read about him and he's a human like you and I. Basically, he's untouchable. Think about this for a second with me. I've been wanting to speak about this for a while. I love this idea that he's untouchable. You, you, you just couldn't do anything that made him worry or fear or get to him. He was imprisoned unjustly and he was beaten on a more than one occasion within an inch of his life. He was beaten so bad one time that uh, the people that were beating him thought he was dead. So they just said, oh, he's dead, let's, let's, look, let's, let's leave him on the ground there. And that's how badly beaten he was. He was shipwrecked three times. You know, once it would be enough for me to say, no more boats. But three times, right? And in spite of this, he was untouchable. Nothing could throw him off. If his life was threatened, he would say, well, to die is gain. Or, they, or to say, uh, I, de- I, depart, I de- desire to depart with Jesus Christ, for that is far better. As he says in Philippians 1. If they said, well, we're not going to kill you, we'd leave you alone, he'd say, great, to live as Christ. Again, Philippians 1.22. Life, death did not phase him. He's untouchable. You know, how about being tortured or being beaten or being persecuted for a follower of Jesus? He'd reply with, I'm ready and welcome the suffering for the sake of Jesus. Philippians 1.29. Or he'd say, these light momentary afflictions is preparing us for an eternal weight of, of glory. Paul sees floggings and beatings and shipwrecks and being stoned as light afflictions in light of what awaits him in glory. He's thrown into uh, the jail unjustly and Paul responds, okay, great, I'll convert the whole jail cell and the guards too. And he does. He's untouchable. You, you, you can't shake him, you can't throw him off, you can't unsettle him. He's fearless and he is courageous. And as I've been reading and looking at the Apostle Paul and studying him, I would love to be like him. I would love to be courageous. I would love to be fearless, no matter what the circumstances are. Not on this emotional roller coaster that a lot of us are, that we get swayed by our, by our circumstances and, and what's coming at us. Not discontent with where we are, or frustrated at life, or finding no or little satisfaction. You know, I find it interesting as, you, as we look around our world at the moment, there are different philosophies adopted to try to cope with life. And the latest one, right, is you only live once, right? We get that a lot. At the moment. You only live once. Uh, that's, that's, that's the catch cry at the moment, really, which is, you know, the whole uh, carpe diem sees the day or live in the moment. And you've got the whole um, current, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an advertising campaign for a beer company called Be the Experience Collector. Just go and chase the next experience because that's what we want life, our life to be about. Don't think too far ahead, just live in the now. My parents' generation was more of the, uh, the stoic generation. Keep your head down, just work as hard as you can. Don't expect anything, just work hard and maybe something will come off. We're much more of the entitled generation now. Different approaches, different philosophies to life. We try to cope with what life is happening in our lives. 
But you read the Apostle Paul's approach, and it seems very, very different. And what I love in the book of Acts is you have his life, and it works. It works, no matter what comes at him. Good times, hard times, it works. I don't know about you, but I long to be untouchable. I long to be fearless in every situation, not fearing what may or may not be a peace, a confidence. But as you read this, there's got to be a question, right? How does he do it? What's his trick? What's his, what does he know that we don't? What's his secret? Well, I just want to try and show you this today. I feel like I'm, I'm going to preach almost a biography of Paul here, but um, we, I just want to show you Acts 27. I want to show you how Paul is courageous, how he is untouchable. Normally, I'd be up here now and I'd say to you, I uh, hear my three points. I'm not doing that today. I think um, uh, last week I heard uh, Jez preach, and I, I want to say, if you didn't hear his sermon, it's worth getting the podcast. He preached so well last week. And what I loved about his sermon was it was just clear and simple, which is very hard to do as a preacher. It was clear and it was simple. And I remember it was, it was about being a witness and a servant. I remember that. So I want to try and simplify this today and think about how can we be courageous and untouchable like the Apostle Paul in the light of our lives. That's what I want to entertain for you guys. But I'm going to walk through um, Acts 27 with you. This is a pretty cool story that Jez read. I think it would make an amazing movie. Um, and it's got a happy ending, so I would like it. Um, so um, it's, it's, it's a great account from Luke. He's writing here, and he puts himself in the story. He says, we. So he's on the ship. So there's Luke, there's uh, Paul, and then there's a guy called Aristarchus. Three guys, three friends on this ship. As Jez just mentioned before, um, we, we, uh, last week uh, we have Acts 26 where uh, Paul is speaking to the king, Agrippa, and he's talking about he's on trial because the Jews were after him and he was trying to explain why he was on trial. And Agrippa says, there's no reason for you to be here, but you appeal to Caesar, so to Caesar you go. So chapter 27 starts with his trip to find Caesar, to get to Rome on the ship. Uh, he's sent there with a bunch of other prisoners. So there's about 300 people on this ship. And the man looking after them all is a guy called Julius, who's a centurion um, from the Imperial Regiment. Uh, his job would have been to escort high-profile prisoners like the Apostle Paul. And uh, that's what he was to do. I'm going to show you a map. I'm going to try and show you a bit of geography lesson today and a bit of my sailing knowledge that I've found this week, which is incredible. Um, <laughs> I'm going to show you what's going on here. It's pretty interesting what happens here. So there's no ship that could take Paul and the, uh, and the prisoners straight onto Italy into Rome. And so they set sail from Caesarea. You can see that in the bottom right-hand corner, Caesarea is down there. And they travel from there, that's where Paul is, and they travel to Sidon in their first day. This was a trading vessel. So they jumped on a trading ship. It wasn't their own ship. It was a trading ship. They jumped on that. And, uh, and, and Julius, who likes him, says, look, Paul, I'll give, you, I'll give you a bit of a break. Have a few days off in Sidon to see some friends. And he does that. Um, but they get back on the ship. And uh, because of the direction of the wind they were heading, uh, it, uh, we read the wind was against them. And so they had to pass the reeds under, under the lee of Cyprus. Uh, that just means to sail north of Cyprus. Bit of a sailing term for you guys who don't know that. Um, I'm like, who's lee? Anyway, I didn't know what was going on, right? Lee, so they had to go, right? They had to go above Cyprus, as you can see there. They went above Cyprus. That's where they're sailing around. Um, and this makes sense when Paul says, and Luke says, sentence five, they were sailing across the open sea of Cilicia. That's where they were going up there. Uh, at, at Myra, they, uh, they change ships. They jump off that ship and jump on another ship. And that would have taken from, from uh, Caesarea through to Myra up there. It would have taken two weeks on that ship. 
that's how long it would take him, two weeks uh, to get there. Uh, and they find a ship that's heading, heading for Italy, uh, and it's carrying grain. Grain, they, they, uh, it reads that they would have come from Alexander, which is down in Egypt. Uh, Alexander is the top of Egypt. And uh, the ship went up to Myra with grain on it, and then it would have gone across up into Rome. And they jumped on that ship uh, to get across to Rome. As their sailing became slow from Myra because of the winds, and they eventually arrived, arrived at Sinus, which is up there, right next to Rhodes. They might have gone to Ikea for a bit, but I'm not sure. Um, got some bit of furniture. Anyway, funny jokes. Pretty good joke, isn't it? Anyway, let's keep moving on. Um, and so they go into Sinus there, and they pull into there. Um, uh, but instead of sailing west across the lower of the Aegean Sea, so uh, north of Crete, the wind blows them down towards Crete. Uh, the northwest wind that was hitting them is, was north of the part of, uh, in the end of summer, and that's what would have hit them at that time. And so they, uh, so they round the Cape of Salomon, which is, I think, I think it's, it's, um, it's called Salomon. Am I right? Jono, you're Greek, that's Greece. I don't know, man. Um, Jono's just been here for a year from Greece anyway, by the way. Um, Anyway, it's, it's in Greece, and uh, it, they, they go there, and they hug the south coast of Crete for a little while, um, and they pull into a place called Fair Havens. I think of a caravan park up the coast when he Fair Havens. Anyway, um, we read that. They pull into there, and uh, they lost a lot of time because of the winds, and so they pull into Fair Havens up into there, and uh, Paul is there, and, he's, and uh, it's almost in the time of winter. Now, be, it's, it's a really treacherous time to travel in winter. The storms pick up, the seas pick up. And so no one traveled on the waters during winter. And it was just about hit winter time. And so they pull into Fair Havens, and Paul says, okay, we're done, let's stay here. And the captain of the ship says, no way, we've got to make it across to Phoenix. Uh, Phoenix is a much better port. If we're going to winter there, as they call it, for three months, we want to go to Phoenix, not in Fair Havens. Uh, Luke records for us, Paul is not keen for this. He's saying people will get hurt, cargo will be lost if we go. So let's stay here. Um, but they don't listen to Paul. Instead, they head, it's only 70 kilometers west towards Phoenix, and they say we can make it. A gentle south wind picks up, and so they go, right, now's the time to go. And they head along the coast of Crete trying to get to, uh, trying to, get to Phoenix. But before long, sentence 14 says, a wind of a hurricane force picks up and blows them way off course, and there is nothing they can do about it. And there are no more harbours to take refuge in on the open sea. So they're aiming for Phoenix, and they end up in Malta. Now, I'm no sailor, right? But that's not, that's not good sailing. Uh, they've missed that by a fair way. That's where they end up. And there's a few little squiggly lines, and a few donuts in there as well. I'm not sure what happened, but being blown all over the shop. And so they get blown so far off course, trying to hit Phoenix, which is uh, pretty, pretty crazy. They get pounded by the storm. Uh, the crew tries to do everything they can, pulling up lifeboats, trying to tie ropes around the ship, trying to keep the ship together. They're, they're fearing it's going to smash apart. Um, they're throwing all their equipment overboard, um, and the storm doesn't stop, and they're being blown way off course. And then eventually, sentence 20 says, they give up hope. Sentence 20 says, they, they, their whole crew's like, we're going to die. We're, we're done. Then Paul steps up in sentence 21. Now remember, he's just a prisoner on the ship. He's just one of the other prisoners on this ship. And uh, Luke and Aristarchus are there. They're the only followers of Jesus on this ship. 300, 300 other people, crew, um, uh, uh, criminals and soldiers. And he addresses them all. In sentence 21, there's a bit of, I told you so. Uh, but then he goes on to say, uh, let's not give up hope. Have a look at these sentences behind me, 22 to 26. He says this. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. 
last night an angel of the God, an angel of, of the of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, "Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So, give up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as He told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some islands." So twice he calls them to take courage. Don't fear, take courage. Why? Because he says, the God whom, uh, whom I belong to and whom I worship has sent an angel to say we will get to Rome and uh, no one will be lost. And I want to come back to this later. This is, this is a real key in the whole story. But um, we read then, it keeps going on. Sentence 27, they say, two more weeks. Uh, go back to the map for me. Um, more geography for us. Two more weeks going across across the Aegean, uh, Adriatic Sea, sorry, across the Adri- Adri- Adriatic Sea, heading across from uh, being blown all over the place. They're not even aiming for Malta at all, uh, but uh, they, they get blown across, um, across the sea there. And uh, they realise soon that they're getting close to some ground, so the, rock, the, the, the ocean floor is getting higher and higher, and they realise they're getting close to something, so they drop anchor and pray for daylight. Um, they're still panicked, the crew's panicking, and so they try and get out of it, and so they try and lower some lifeboats down and pretend to letting anchors down. They're going to jump in the lifeboat and leave them behind. Paul senses this, tells the centurion, the centurion cuts the lifeboats, for, so no one's getting off anymore. They're all staying with the ship. Um, so they've all got to stay with the ship. Um, we read in sentence 33, Paul stands up and says, again, don't lose heart, grab some food, uh, you're going to need some energy, um, but you won't get harmed. And I love what Paul does here. He gets up in front of 300 criminals, soldiers, crewmen, gets his food, and he, in front of them all, stands up, gives thanks to God, and says, this food is from the Lord, and he prays for it, and says to them, eat food, and they do, and it says after they did this, they were all super encouraged. Love that Paul, this prisoner, is now leading this ship and calling the shots. Daylight comes, see the beach in Malta, they aim for the beach, so they hit a sandbar, and the ship is just smashed to bits by the waves. Soldiers think, what can we do? Cut the prisoners escape. So they think, well, let's just kill them. We think, well, that's it, full on. But in Rome, under Roman rule, um, if, uh, if, a, if a prisoner under the guard's watch escapes, the guard then has to stand trial for what the prisoner was guilty of. So if the, person was, uh, if the prisoner was guilty of murder, that would then jump onto the guard. So they're like, let's just kill them anyway. <laughs> and say, so he wants to kill them and, and, and take their lives. But at that moment, uh, Julius, the centurion, steps in and says, no, 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 because he wants Paul's life spared. He now respects Paul. He says, don't kill anybody. So they all jump in the water, and they swim, and they survive, just as Paul says. They arrived at Malta. They met with kindness. Then we get this weird little story at the end here where Paul is collecting firewood. I picture Survivor because it's in my head at the moment. But anyway, they're on the island there, voting people out. Anyway, and uh, Paul is collecting firewood. And this happens, sentence three. Weird. Paul gathers a pile of brushwood, and he puts it on the fire, and a viper driven by the heat, fastens itself onto, Luke, onto Paul's hand. So Paul's got firewood. Let's picture this. Paul's got firewood, and he's like, oh, what's that thing hanging off my arm? It's a viper stuck to his arm. And, and Paul's like, oh, what a cute little thing. You know, it's just, it seems a bit weird. You know, he's, um, he's bitten, and nothing happens. And the islanders see him from Malta, see him go, wow, um, it must be the, God of just, the gods of justice are trying to punish him because he's a murderer. Um, that's why the snakes got him. Um, but then Paul just shakes it off like, like it's a mozzie, and uh, the islanders think, wow, this guy mustn't be, uh, must be some sort of god because a viper hasn't, hasn't hurt him. The old, the old viper trick to people over with. <laughs> I, know, I know I've done that a few times. Anyway, and, um, and so he's, he, uh, he's fine. Then he goes to the island. He heals a few people. 
and uh, he actually heals the chief official's dad and the rest of the sick on the island. Um, and that's where they stay for three months in Malta, waiting for another ship to come so they can head up towards Rome. But it's, it's a crazy story with highs and there's lows. But what I've been really struck by, and uh, it's the same thing I've been struck by again and again and again in the book of Acts, is Paul's courage. The whole ship is saying, look, we're going to die. Paul does not give in at one point. He's confident and he's bold and he's courageous, knowing that everything will be okay. But where does his confidence come from? Let me try to illustrate this by going back to the illustration I used at the start. As I said, my brother is five years older than me. We played rugby together. Uh, looked out for me in many ways. Oh, one week I was, um, I had... I was playing rugby and I was playing for seconds and um, the game started at, I think it kicked off at two, I had to be there at one, I was there quite late and I ran in the change room to get dressed and I opened my bag up and I looked in there and I found my rugby shorts and I had, there was no, there was no undies in there, I'm like damn, no undies man. And I was wearing loose fitting boxer shorts and they were longer than my rugby shorts and so I'm like, I can't do that, I look like an idiot. So I'm like, oh, what do I do, I'm in trouble, right, I've got nothing to do. Anyway, I called my brother and I, I said, Aunt, you know, I've got, I got no undies. And uh, he looks at me, opens his bag up and goes, look, Gav, here, have mine. And he was playing after me, gave me his undies to wear. What a guy, right? And so I knew, I knew, when I played in the rugby field with him, I was confident that the guy who gave me his undies would also look after me in every way in the field, right? If someone gives you your undies, you know they're going to get you back wherever you go. But that's the sort of guy that he was. He was willing to do anything for me. We're brothers, we're pretty close, like we are now anyway, um, sharing undies. Uh, but... <laughs> that's what I was confident in, that he would always look after me no matter what happened. What, what gives Paul confidence? What makes him fearless and untouchable here? As I said, the answer, the key, is sentence 23 to 25. Have a look at this again. I'll slow down and I'll see if we can, see if we can get this. Paul says this. Last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. What gives Paul confidence to be fearless and untouchable? It's three simple words. Paul is God's. Paul is God's. Paul says, the God to whom I belong. These words, I think, are so short, but they are so loaded and rich and full. You see, Paul, the Apostle Paul has never, ever rightly moved on from his conversion. He never left it behind. He hasn't forgotten the lesson that he learnt. The lesson he learnt there was to persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus, one and the same. So therefore to know Jesus is to be his and to be in solidarity with him and to belong to him and be under his care. To be God's, to know this fact, and it's a fact, not a feeling for Paul, not a feeling that come and went for him, to know the fact that he belonged to God built on the death and resurrection, the historical death and resurrection of Jesus, um, is, is where his confidence was found for Paul. It's where the confidence was found. He knew without a doubt that the God of the universe was his heavenly Father and there was no one or nothing, no sword, no famine, no persecution, nor angels, nor demons could separate him from this fact. He knew that his Father's love would never run out or never leave him, or his care or provision ever go, go, go away from him. He knew this God whom he belonged to, and he knew that he was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus, 
and that he would never leave nor forsake him. He knew the righteousness, righteousness that he had was given to him. So it wasn't about his life, his effort, his attempts. So it was so secure that he belonged to God that it freed him up to be, to be, to be bold, to be, uh, to be confident, to be fearless, to be untouchable. His confidence was built on being owned and belonging to a loving and caring heavenly dad. And no matter what he faced in the present or the future... He could be fearless. He trusted in God in all situations. You know, take his life. He goes to glory. Leave him here. He'll continue the mission he was given by God to go and be a witness and a servant. He knew whom he belonged to. And he also knew what that one was like. Because Paul was rescued and because he was saved and brought into a relationship whilst he was killing Christians, while he was dark and, and, and full of bitterness and rage and anger. And God saved him in that mess. It wasn't like Paul was doing good things for the Lord. He was actually the, the opposite. And God found him in that mess and brought him out and saved him out of that mess. And then he knew, therefore, that God was loving, kind, merciful, and full of grace. So Paul's conversion shaped his whole life and his whole outlook. God's mercy and grace was everything for Paul. He never moved on from it. He never got over it. He never took it for granted. And this is what his confidence is built upon. And I think this is so, so important. I wonder, I was thinking about my life, and I'm not for you, but I wonder if we, if we often forget who we were, where we were at, and the mercy that God has, has lavished on us. So shaped by God's grace and mercy. Have we, have we moved on? Have we got used to thinking, well, I'm a good enough person. Of course God would save me. Look at me. We, can, we, we think, oh, no, you know, we're saved by grace. But I think our default is often, of course God would look after me. That's not the Apostle Paul's way. And it's what the Bible says. He knew if God treated him that way when he was against him, then have it when he was on his side. This didn't mean that Paul's life was easy. It was actually full of hardship, far from it. But he knew no matter what the circumstance was or what the situation was, even if he didn't understand, even if he didn't get it, that the God who loves him so much to save him out of his mess will continue to love him and show him grace and mercy in every situation. He knew that God was a good father. He knew his God, his God was full of mercy and grace, but he also knew that God was full of power and might and he saw it again and again. And he knew the one who belongs that made him confident and fearless and untouchable. Throughout the Bible, you, you, you see God's character displayed again and again through the books of the Bible. And one of the books that I think people often run to and read and find hard to understand sometimes and get different things out of is a book in the Old Testament called the book of Job. The book of Job's 40, 41, 42 chapters long. And all the, all the, uh, all the, the, the eventful stuff is at the beginning and the end. And if you know this story, Job's about the, a man, a righteous man, a good man, who suffers, and suffers severely. Uh, he has a big family, he has uh, lots of staff, he has his health, and uh, you read in the first two, two chapters that he is afflicted. He loses everything, family, possessions, and he gets really, really sick. He gets whacked. And his friends turn up and they say to Job, look Job, um, the reason why you're sick, the reason why you're suffering is because you're a bad guy. You've sinned, and because of that, you are being punished by God. And Job says, it's not true. And we read in the Bible, and we read in the first two chapters, that's not true at all either. 
There's no foundation for that. But throughout the book, as you keep reading the book, um, Job keeps crying out for God and saying, God, how dare you? Come and answer me. Come and give me an answer to why I'm suffering. And it gets bigger and bigger in God. And Job starts demanding of God, like, you know, you enter, the, you enter the dock. It's almost like a courtroom scene set up. And Job's saying, you enter the dock, God, and I'll ask you questions. Where are you? Why are you silent, God? Over and over again. This goes on for about 38 chapters or so. Then finally, um, God arrives. And he, it says he speaks out of the eye of a storm. It's like uh, he, he arrives on the scene. And these are some of the most amazing chapters of the Bible, I think, chapter 38 to 40, 41, where uh, God um, addresses Job. And uh, sorry to ruin the ending, ending of the book for you, but um, God asks a lot of questions towards Job. He says, okay, Job, I'll ask you some questions first. Basically, he says, Job, can you do what I, what I do? Do you know what I know, Job? Basically, in these three chapters at the end of uh, the book of Job, uh, he asks Job, uh, he doesn't answer Job's question of why, but he asks Job, he, he says to Job, I am wise, I am powerful, I am all-knowing, and I am good. The question of why is answered with those questions. You know, for me, a lot of my fear and worry and anxiety comes out of not being able to be in control. I don't like not being in control. I don't like not knowing what's coming tomorrow because it could be something bad, and how am I going to deal with that? And the problem is that I'm limited in my power, in my wisdom, in my knowledge. I regularly get things wrong. I regularly misapply things, misread situations, intentions and circumstances. I am a limited mortal human being. But the one whom I belong to isn't. God is not limited in power. He's not limited in wisdom. He's not limited in knowledge. And he says, and we know, he is so good. He is so loving. He is so kind. He is so merciful. And he is full of grace. It comes down to, to, to knowing the one whom you belong to. And the question is, do you trust him? We either trust God or we try and be God. The plans of God very rarely play out like we think they're going to. The question is, will you trust the one whom you belong to? I want to finish with this. I've been trying to think about and read a bit more on um, biographies of people from church history who have been through similar things and how they've responded to things. One of the guys that I've had a brief look at this week, I was looking at John Patton a couple of weeks ago. He's an amazing man. And this week I've been looking a bit of, uh, um, because of this sermon, on John Newton. John Newton um, became a sea captain uh, young at, when he was young, but he, was, he grew up on ships and he became a captain of a ship, of a slave ship, selling, selling humans into slavery um, as a young man. Uh, he lived a rough life. Uh, he, uh, he was a heavy drinker. No one respected him. Um, he was in trouble with the law regularly. Then on May 1748, he captained a slave ship that was struck by a great storm off the coast of Africa. And in that time, he cried out to God for mercy, and God delivered him. Now, Newton, Newton's life was full of ups and downs over a 30 year period, running to God, running away from God, running to God, running away from God, and eventually fully committed to the Lord. And later on in life, he wrote of his experience on the ship, which we now sing in the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. These are the words. 
Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace, or God's grace, has brought me safe thus far, and God's grace will lead me home. You know, just like John Newton, the Apostle Paul was so aware of God's grace in his life. He never moved on from that. He knew whom he belonged to. He knew what he was like. And this made him untouchable. and made him fearless. and made him courageous. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord, you, you know our hearts. You know that we are prone to, to be anxious and to wander and to want to control all things and, and that often plays out in us not trusting you as we ought. We want to say we are sorry for that. But Lord, we know that you are kind and you are gracious. We want to pray, Lord, that we would never move on from who you are. Lord, we, we often... Our emotions and our situations and our circumstances often, often change the way we view you and think of you. We just want to pray that today, this afternoon, that we would again understand your character. You're a God who is full of grace and full of mercy and full of kindness. And you're powerful to change lives no matter who we are or where we're at with you. Lord, you are a heavenly father, a good dad who calls Cause your children home. Lord, I just want to pray for those of us who have wandered or who are feeling distant, that we, we know that, that you long for us to come back, that we, we love that your mercies are anew each day, that tomorrow is a brand new day. Lord, you empower us. We want to pray that today and this afternoon as we leave here, as we about to sing praises to you, that... that we would again understand just, just how amazing you are, what we have in you. And that would just help us to understand this world that we live in. It would help us to understand these circumstances that we are facing. When we live lives that have you at the center. That's what you've made for us. Lord, I want to thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. I want to thank you for the gospel I want to pray, Lord, as we sing these songs and have hearts full of thanks, as we leave here today, the things you have spoken to us, you have personally said to us and put on our hearts, will not just drift off, we would think about them, we would come to you knowing that you love us and you're a good Father. We pray these things in our King's name. Amen. We say each week here at City Light, Bible's open, God speaks. We'll give you time to reflect, think about what God said to you and how you might want to respond.